This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Brad Snyder joins us on this week's holiday episode. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because this Naval Academy grad turned Paralympic gold medalist has an amazing story. After several deployments as an EOD officer, his last with a Navy SEAL team left him blinded. Brad suffered a blast to the face after stepping on a buried IED. Although his facial injury is healed in relatively short order, his eyes were damaged beyond repair. Hear how Brad was able to pivot and take his personal drive and type A personality in a different direction by revisiting his passion for swimming. A collegiate competitor, Brad is no stranger to training, setting goals, and exceeding them. He relies on his positive mindset and vigilant approach to maintaining perspective as a means to dominate not only the sport of swimming, but also the challenges of navigating life as a blind man. This is episode 135. Yo, Power Athlete Nation, what is happening? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. This is Denny, and I feel like it's been fucking weeks since I spoke to you guys. I'm excited. I'm joined with John, Luke, and Tex, and our guest today is Mr. Brad Schneider, Paralympic swimmer, gold medalist, motivational speaker, this all-around badass. Brad, thanks for taking the time to talk shop with us, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Uh, you know, before we get going, I wanted to kind of touch base with my boys, uh, Luke and Tex, and see how the past weekend went. Oh, Denny. I know. You missed out, dude. It was so, amazing. It was raining men. Well, oh, well, actually. Hey, well, actually, what we did is um, elevator pitch. Sixty seconds. What did I miss? Well, uh, Denny, that's why Dr. my voice Tom. is. Well, my, my voice is a little beat up because we had the 12, uh, 12 packs of Christmas, where we had to smoke twelve packs of Christmas every day leading up to the event. So, it was a party. <laughs> no, you missed. Uh, you missed Christmas. Killer talks from Andy, from Rob, from John, and uh, Dr. Tom. I, I thought Dr. Tom stole the show, yeah, uh, he, but uh, that's not to detract from Rob or Andy or John. Yeah, he went full toe boogie. I mean, he started bringing, like, he showed up with, like, five suitcases of technology about how you can put together a very simple protocol to pretty much fix anything that you have going on from, like, lasers and lights to this. I mean, the dude... Yeah, full-on... It was basically like a full-on performance and recovery clinic that you... that you In your garage for, like, uh, 15 grand. Yeah. Which, like, 15 grand sounds like a lot, but he, you can do everything from stimulate growth hormone to yeah. stem cell growth to... Dude, just he has these crazy, these crazy. Like you could grow a third arm out of the third arm back yeah. if you really wanted to, and then replace it onto you know, and then graft it onto other parts of your body. <laughs> uh, nah, he, I mean, he he went over supplements. I mean, Tom is you know by far one of the smartest people on the planet when it comes to recovery and 
one of the most advanced in the world in terms of blood, uh, you know, blood testing and performance oh. matrix. I mean, just, you know, genius of a dude. And uh, Danny, I think you've heard him speak before at uh, the Knowledge Fest. Were we there at that one? I was not. Oh, well, you missed him twice then. <laughs> Dumbass. He was also in Arizona where you at that one. Yeah, he was actually at Arizona where you at that one. So that's three times you missed him. The, the only time I've got a chance to speak with Tom is when we had him on the show. <laughs> well, and you know there was not much speaking other than him just going completely off the reservation. But uh, that he was great. Andy gave a, uh, came up and gave a talk on goal setting and leadership that was so spot on that I almost like took a step back and I was like, oh my god, that was you know I I just didn't I, you know I've known Andy for years in a lot of different settings and to oh. hear him really go through goal settings and talk about, you know, as a SEAL and then also as a BUDS instructor, talking to the kids who made it and those who didn't, and then being able to kind of put a, a you know, a cohesive understanding of why people succeed in the face of these, of these um, you know, incredible challenges was really, really enlightening. And also, uh, I, I felt like I learned tremendous from that. And then, of course, Rob Wolf, who is always, uh, you know, right there on the cutting edge. And so he came in and talked about, you know, food performance and, you know, what they're doing with specialty health. And it was, um, it was, it, it, we could not have asked for better presenters. And then I got up there and hacked it up. <laughs> no, John dropped knowledge bombs as usual. And just on his, what he's been meditating on for the definition of athleticism and opportunity and uh, offline, he's been talking to tons of people about their experiences as a child and upbringing and where they, you know, where did they find, that they finally exceeded or reached that higher level of athleticism. Yeah, I've been, um, you know, my, my little bandy project lately has been interviewing different people that have succeeded at, you know, some phenomenal things and just really going back and talking to them about how they were raised and what things are most influential and how they kind of got to where they are. I mean, unfortunately, when we hear about athletes doing great things, we always hear about their accomplishment today. We don't necessarily hear about the lead up. Yeah. yeah, and how they, you know, how they got there. And uh, it was, it, it, you know, and, the people I really enjoy speaking to are people that are, you know, outside of my generation. Like I had a great chance to talk to Coach Bergner and Tom Furman and a, mm-hmm. a bunch of different people and just listening about how they grew up and, uh, you know, things that were important to their family and kind of how, uh, you know, just the opportunity to really do things was presented at a young age and it kind of really grafted into some really neat things. And it's just, um, you know, unfortunately, as we become more advanced and there becomes more information at our fingertips, we sometimes lose sight of some of the you know most basic kind of anecdotal kind of things, and that was really my deal to reach back and talk to some people. Like I got a great chance to talk to Bergner, and he was talking about at six years old he had a four-ton shotgun, and part of his deal was he had to go out and hunt birds to not only uh, get rid of the birds that were eating all their crops because he grew up on a little farm in in Illinois, but also to bring them home. So his dad would give him a shotgun and a bunch of shells and say, "All right, see you back here in four hours. I need uh, you know X amount of birds." And so he'd go out there and shoot birds, and he talked about, you know, walking out in the wilderness as a six-year-old kid with a shotgun, how it, it was just normal, and that was just part of the deal. And now you think about today, uh, you know, if they found a six-year-old kid in the, out in the woods shooting birds with a 410 shotgun, CNN would be called, there'd be helicopters, child services would come, and there would be this, you know, how, how could you allow our children to do this? And um, it just, it, it, it's pretty amazing, and, uh, you know, that the farther I think we get to where we're going, the farther we forget about who we are, and really, that, you know, a big part of this stuff is being able to uh, empower, you know, whether our kids to be, you know, self-support or supportive, but also to, uh, you know, be able to go out and accomplish things. And so I think, you know, as us in this kind of computer generation, we have this idea that we can kind of program everything, and we can kind of sit behind and really be these, you know, kind of masters of the galaxy, and more important, like the uh, Wizard of Oz in a lot of ways. 
Whereas sometimes you just have to like provide opportunity and like kind of step back. And I think that was one of the most interesting things for me, especially talking to, you know, Tom Furman, we had him on the podcast with such a great talk offline about, you know, Charles Bronson and how he grew up and some of like the, you know, the kind of fringe athletes that we're not really familiar with, like the kettlebell guys in Russia and how they've trained and how they kind of grew up in these different situations. So it's been a, an interesting project and really enlightening for me as, you know, not only having two kids, but one on the way. So now all of a sudden I'm sitting back and being like, uh, what do you do? Do you not do anything? Or are you just like provide the playing field and then like push them out there and hope to God they just kind of take you know, like a duck to water to it. So it's been cool. And then how can we forget uh, Tex unveiling just a fraction of his opus with his um, his opportunity model that you and him collaborated on and then our, our lunge practical where everyone was just blown away at their inability to uh, to lunge. <laughs> it was well, like it's because as a you know not only it's a training style that most people are coming to us from is uh, all about hinging mm -hmm. and you know, oh yeah, so that's yeah. Something that was that we've, definitely apparent. We've um, and quad dominance. I mean yeah. unilateral quad dominance and just it's, imbalance. What is that? What or it all was just a bilateral quad dominance, dominance or um, and, 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 and like a neutral spine. Well, it's it's um, if you you know and and if you were here for the athleticism talk, I mean we talked about. Most of what we do within this kind of functional fitness, you know, uh, functional model, if you want to say, and I fucking feel like setting myself on fire and saying that out loud, but really in the training styles, whether you look at what most people are propagating as, as what they call athletic training or functional training, everything's a form of hinging at the hip. And it doesn't matter if it's a squat, it doesn't matter if it's a front squat, clean, Olympic lifting, Olympic movements, gymnastics moves, everything involves some form of hinging. And when we went back and took a look, I mean, hinging is just one aspect of the you know, primal movement patterns that we've established for the lower body. And that ability to take a step and lunge, which is really the initial step you know, from a hinge in terms of athleticism. Like think about a linebacker playing in the universal athletic position, ball gets snapped, he takes a step. And that ability to, to you know, get into a unilateral movement pattern um, is completely overlooked. And people don't, you know, they just almost look at it as secondary. Well, mm -hmm. you know, all I have to do is just squat. And if I squat, and, you know, and part of that comes from RIP. I mean, RIP was like, well, all athletes need to do is squat. Well, mm -hmm. it's true. Um, if you're talking about beginning athletes who can't squat, but once an athlete demonstrates a squat, like how do you progress these movements? And for all sport, you have to be able to progress into some form of unilateral movement. So... But then you have all these other guys like the, you know, the Eric Cressys of the world and NSAM and all this where it's like, oh, it's only about unilateral movements. You know, all we do is teach a Bulgarian split squat. But then we have a great talk with Stu McGill where he says, you know, those guys have done more good or more, more, more harm than good because the constant torquing of the hips in the unilateral deal has basically loosened up the hip sockets. And now he's seeing all these different problems within the hip and the low back from people doing too much of that. And so, you know, how do you find this, this perfect balance between, you know, not only hinging you know, lunging on that uh, Y and Z axis, you know, on the iliac crest, you know, horizon changing. So uh, we've sat back, and Texas done an incredible job of putting this together and not only teaching the finer points, but how do you blend them together to really create this thing that we call athleticism, which in the talk, I mean, you know, we, we haven't necessarily launched a talk publicly. I've just done it twice, and it's the idea of what I call the um, athleticism continuum, which is this never-ending continuum of trying to develop athleticism because there isn't a single person, even the worst athlete we've seen, has some semblance of athleticism that can be improved by using uh, you know, 
this model and these tools we've put together to try to develop their athleticism, and it's just really never-ending. And I think, and even at, and on the converse, yeah. the best athletes have opportunity for improvement. And I think what is fascinating about the continuum is pushing that boundary has no adverse effect on performance or longevity, well-being. You know, whereas in contrast, the the fitness continuum has a sweet spot because you go too far, and what happens, Denny? start to implode, right? Well, and, and Rob made a great right. point. You know, Rob created that, um, you know, across Health and wellness continuum. Yeah, the health and wellness continuum. That was Rob's sickness. Much like most of the early CrossFit, I mean, even the GPP term was, uh, if you go back and look at the original message boards, Rob was, when they first were talking about this idea of fitness and training, Rob's like, you mean GPP, like the Westside guys? And that was kind of really the first kind of avenue that CrossFit took down that kind of road. And, um, you know, if you go back and read all, I mean, they might have scrubbed it all out, but it still exists in some median. And um, really, that, that kind of sickness, wellness, health continuum. And Rob, I know when he heard my, my talk, uh, made the point, he's like, geez, I never realized that fitness was a cup and athleticism was a never-ending continuum because you can always be working to develop your athleticism, even the best athlete on the planet. And one day maybe we'll have a, a, a power athlete game that's the search for the most athletic person on the planet. And John, I mean, but that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> but 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 think about, it. I mean, that would be, I mean, it's pretty much Ninja Warrior. Because I, you <laughs> yeah, know, they already like, have it. Yeah, it's they already called, have it. It's called Ninja Warrior. No, MXC, the most extreme elimination challenge. Dude, when I watched Ninja Warrior, like that one guy who finally that rock climber dude that finished it, I was like, he might be the most athletic person on the planet. Uh, but you know, that idea of uh, working to develop athleticism, and I think you know, when you look at fitness, you can become more fit without ever moving your feet. You can put your feet flat on the ground in a closed chain bilateral hip hinge, and you can squat up and down, pull. I mean, do all these things, and you can create basically create a more fit person in your living room, in your living room, anywhere. So, I mean, that's why I think it's it's become such an explosion in terms of this idea of fitness. Uh, and while extremely important, just like strength is and fitness and all these different elements of uh, of, of I guess physical adaptation, but at the end of the day, the you know the pinnacle for us is how do you combine all these things into a you know, seamless symphony to really be able to demonstrate athleticism. And, you know, the, the coolest part is athleticism is really not even quantifiable in that you know it when you see it. It's one of those things that's like a truth. You see somebody do something, you see them take a step off the, off the curb and sprint across the street or you watch them in the gym, and instantly you get this, like, you know, we're programmed to see it in a way. You're like, oh, you're really athletic. What right. did you do before this? Oh, you're a gymnast. Oh, you played this. I mean, it's always something. I've never, but one person I've ever met said, well, I've never really done anything before this. And I was like, really? Because you're really athletic. You could have done something really nice. I mean, you know, the, the fact that this is your first entree into trading or um, entrance into training is sad. But uh, I think to really develop that and then be able to put it to a test where you're competing against another person or in a grander scheme is really the, you know, what we're looking for. And I think the, you know, best celebration of those talents. You know, I, I still, like, find myself constantly trying to, like, explain the difference between increasing your work capacity and what athleticism is. You know, there's still, like, there's still those who confuse the two. You know, increasing your work capacity turns you into this this athlete, you know, this natural, or not a natural athlete, but just it makes you more athletic in, in almost any given like endeavor and I'm constantly trying to explain what work capacity really is and then what like athleticism is you know so 
I'm glad that like, you know, power athlete took that approach and took the challenge to like kind of go down that rabbit hole and, um, explain to everybody the difference, do the research, put the information out there and really kind of, you know, put it out there for everybody to, to learn and understand. I think uh, two of the biggest take, takeaways from this weekend that I, I had, number one was essentially goals and what's in between the years that Andy talked about. And the second was the importance of competition and that platform to increase your athleticism. Essentially, you need that high level of stress to really reach and get even more coordinated and that opportunity to use your strength, your power, and your speed. Um, so that that competition platform, I'd kind of like to, to tie this back to back to Brad, uh, and I, I read somewhere that, that tragedy is a gift because it forces us to find our purpose. Uh, so I want to kind of get into to Brad's story. Uh, one of the big reasons we, we invited him here is just kind of talk about his experience and what we, uh, we can take away from it. So if you want to talk about your journey, Brad, and uh, just kind of get us started. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that statement, tragedy is a gift, and there, there's kind of this concept that's out there a little bit now in the veteran world about post-traumatic growth as opposed to, as opposed to post-traumatic stress. Um, I couldn't, uh, I think that echoes like my experiences uh, big time, like through all of the, I had a very difficult uh, couple years um, between 2009 and 2011, and I feel like the person I am now is just such a far cry from the person I was in 2009, and had everything to do with those difficult experiences. They taught me a lot about myself, they taught me a lot about the world, and they taught me a lot about how to handle those stresses, and they've really empowered me to do a lot of different things. You talk about uh, like work capacity and athleticism, what's the point of that? It's the ability to negotiate different challenges, whether it's moving a barbell around or you know saving a baby from a car or something along those lines. You want to be an athletic person because you want to be able to negotiate daily challenges. Um, and a lot of times, like you know, just the the global forces that we don't control enable us to figure out how we're going to survive in those environments. So, you know, off of my soapbox or whatever, and I was, uh, I was an explosive ordnance disposal officer with the Navy for a period of about seven years, and that's a fancy way of saying I was a part of the bomb squad, uh, you know, for the Navy. And I deployed once to Iraq in 2008, 2009, came back, and then was assigned to a SEAL team to become their uh, subject matter expert in explosive hazards and deployed to Afghanistan again in 2011. Um, while I was in Afghanistan, I found out my dad had died, uh, which was difficult, but kind of called into question, like, what's the purpose of things? Like, you know, what, what am I doing here and, and what am I trying to accomplish? Kind of a purpose-driven kind of thing and decided that I, I wasn't going to come home. I decided to stay in Afghanistan uh, to serve with my platoon and, and continue to do the thing I was doing out there. And then in, uh, in the, that, that fall, I stepped on an improvised explosive device buried in the ground uh, while we were trying to help these two other Afghans who were hurt. Uh, and it, uh, the blast knocked me backward. Uh, I got really lucky with the way that it hit me. It hit me really straight in the face, which you'd think would be bad, but uh, my body was largely unharmed. Um, I suffered some pretty bad blast damage to my face, but uh, overall everything healed fine except for my eyes. So the lasting effect of my getting, you know, blown up basically was the fact that I, I had to figure out how to be uh, blind. <clears throat> um, shortly after, like while I was in my rehab and recovery, uh, there's a lot of resources out there for our wounded vet community, and one of those is being adaptive sports. Um, having a prior uh, background in athletics and swimming, I swam all the way through college at the Naval Academy. Um, they got me back into swimming really quickly. Uh, 
at first I didn't really see the point. I, I didn't really understand why sports was going to be so important. But what I've learned through those experiences is that sports is such a great conduit for us to kind of, uh, it's like a microcosm for the challenges of, of life. Like what we do on the fields, what we do in the weight room, what we do in the pool allows us to understand ourselves and how we're going to negotiate challenge. Um, and for me, being able to succeed in the Paralympic realm allowed me to kind of rebuild my self-perception. You know, I used to be this real badass dude, like working with a SEAL team, taking apart bombs and all that sort of stuff. And now, you know, as a blind person, at first I was struggling to, you know, find the pork chop on my plate or find my way to the bathroom or put toothpaste on a toothbrush. Just stupid, idiotic, itty, easy things were now a big challenge. And that really eroded at my perception of self. Um, but being able to to compete, to train, to, to work hard again, to, uh, to eventually win in the Paralympic realm allowed me to rebuild that self-perception um, and taught me a lot about how to negotiate challenge. So, you know, in the, in the years afterward, uh, from those experiences, I, I've kind of adapted my vocation to be, how do I distill out of those experiences some ways to empower other people to negotiate daily challenge as well, um, whether your challenge is you know, the, the morning commute and, you know, uh, the, the nine to five that you find yourself in, or if your challenge is, you know, I just found out that I have cancer and I have to work through those challenges. I really truly believe, you know, the pillars of negotiating challenge are all the same. And the more we train and the more we work through like small challenges, it enables us to do the big things when, when life strikes, you know what I mean? Could you dive further into the, those pillars of negotiation? I'm, I'm not too familiar. Uh, I mean, uh, I use the word pillars. They're like these are all things that I've just kind of made up in my mind. But I think, you know, the, the some of the biggest things that I've found that have helped me along the way are this idea of a positive attitude is as a deliberate decision. You know, I'm a pretty positive and upbeat person, and I like to be smiling and joking around a lot. And that's not because I'm naive or stupid. I mean, I know the world can be a tough place, and I know that you know daily challenges out there. But I make a deliberate decision to be the one. Uh, to be positive, like go, you go to you go to practice every day, and some people are bitching and moaning about you know being at the gym or being at the pool, and you don't want to be that person. Like every every opportunity you have to be in the gym is an opportunity for you to get better. And the more that you, the more that you buy into that concept and decide to uh, make the most of that hour or two or three or however long you're in the gym, you know that that's that's going to empower you to make yourself better, to grow and to develop. So uh, I think making the deliberate choice to be a positive person uh, is one of the first things that has enabled me to succeed. The second thing is uh, championing the part of the, like championing the community that we're a part of. So like when I woke up in the hospital, I wasn't there alone. I was there with my mom, my brothers, my sister, my teammates from college, the, the guys I deployed with. You know, there was a big community of people out there to help me and prop me up when I was down and get me going again. And uh. I think that understanding that we function better as a community than we do as individuals is is critically important. When I was standing on the podium in London with the medal around my neck, you know, with the anthem is playing, right, and the the flag is being raised higher than all the other flags, and I recognize in that moment that the 50 stars and the 13 stripes on our flag represent something so much bigger than myself. I never would have been able to succeed in any of those realms had it not been for my coaches, for my family, for the teammates I had on deployment, for all these people who loved and supported me along the way, like I'm just a, I'm a small cog in a big wheel and recognizing that fact is really important in our eventual success. Individuals rarely attain true greatness. It's when communities band together, that's when real magic happens. 
Um, I also use this idea like, you know, we go through our lives, we interact with like hundreds and hundreds of people every day. Um, you know, wh what were those interactions like? You know, like you had the opportunity, you went to you went to Starbucks and got a coffee, or you went to the store, you went to Whole Foods and grabbed some, uh, you know, grab whatever your, your groceries. And you have these kind of like transactional relationships with all these people along the way. The, the person behind the meat counter or the, 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 the vendor up at the front checking out your groceries. Most of us just blow through all of those interactions without ever even thinking about the fact that I was interacting with a human being. And that person has feelings and emotions and has a life of their own and they're negotiating their own challenges. I try to go through the, uh, go through life and recognize that I'm a part of that community and I want to make sure that that person knows that I care for them and that like they're important to me and this isn't merely a transactional relationship this is you know we're all in this daily life of challenge and I think understanding our part in a, a greater community is something that can you know lend to success on down the road so I think th those are probably probably the two biggest pillars and there's a whole little other you know set of micro uh, circumstances that, that that are important, but those are the two biggest ones I'd say. So you mentioned a, a coach in that supportive community and network. Uh, I'm just curious how you got back into swimming uh, once you went through this, and then kind of was what lessons or kind of uh, guidance a coach provided that really kept you on track. Uh, like I, I kind of alluded to earlier, like I I didn't actually think that it was that great of an idea. I was actually still in the hospital and I was going through blind rehab at the time and blind rehab's like I, I make the joke that's like Hogwarts for blind people like I was in a hospital as an inpatient down in Augusta Georgia spending every all day like working with my blind cane to figure out how to walk and like my talking phone and all that sort of stuff and I got a call at that particular time and this guy worked for with, uh, the, the US Association for Blind Athletes and his job was to look through the list of military vets and find, find guys like me and then offer up resources towards sports and, I, and my initial reaction was like, oh, yeah, sports will be fun. Like, I definitely want to work out. It's a good recreation. I didn't see it as a way to, like, transform my self-perception and vocation and everything like that. So um, if had, it, had he not be – had he not have been persistent, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten into it. Um, but he, you know, he did all the legwork. He did all the logistics. It also happened to be like there was a confined time on it. Like, I was injured in fall of 2011. If I wanted to be a part of the Paralympics at all, I had to get involved in February, like right away. You had to file all this paperwork. You have to get evaluated. Yada yada yada. So um, I think it was his persistence that got me into it in the first place. Um, and then it's just like I, I think the biggest thing I got from coaches was just a challenge. Like I needed a challenge when when I was first hurt. There's so many people who are like coming out of the woodwork to be like, "We're sorry this happened. You know, we're really devastated that you're hurt, and we're sad, and we're sorry. We're sad. We're sorry." I hated the fact that. You know, I'm used to being the one that's uplifting or that I'm, I'm the strong one that everyone can depend on. I didn't like being the one that was bringing everyone down. I needed a challenge. I needed some way to show everyone that I'm going to be fine. And sports was that, that, that conduit. To be able to swim back and forth in the pool and do it really fast, people don't see me as struggling blind dude. They see me as, whoa, that dude's a pretty good swimmer. Like that's, that's what I wanted people to see. Um, and, and that's kind of like the challenge that I was offered through coaching and, and then Paralympics as well. I find that that's pretty common in the wounded vet community too. Like one of the biggest things we're struggling at in, in transitioning the wounded vet world is they get locked in these idle, slow processes in the VA and they're just sitting in their hospital room not doing anything. And people, everyone's hang, handling them with baby gloves. Oh, you lost your leg. Well, you, you can't do anything now. Like, you know, you're, you're pretty much stuck to this world as a disabled person and 
you'll take on some benefit and then you'll just sit and rot in your house. Like we need to find ways to challenge that population because it, it shows that whether you're missing a leg, two legs, three legs, four legs, whatever, you know, you're still capable of doing a whole lot of stuff. We just have to find a way to adapt and enable you to succeed and, and be challenged just the same way as everyone else. And that was the opportunity that was provided to me and it, you know, it set me on an amazing path. I think this, this trans, uh, transitions well into my next question. So I've been working with a lot of private school kids and trying to create stress or trying to create just this, this anger, this rage to get them to, to push and work hard. So I've been looking a lot into adversity and from that research I found this split between adversity and resiliency. And we talked a little bit about uh, your, your, your take on adversity and resiliency before, before we got on air. So I'm hoping to kind of get into that. Yeah, so uh, I, I, you know, I have thoughts on both words. And I think adversity is one of the most overused words in the English language. And I told you in the, uh, before the, the show started, like, I, I hear, I, oh, I watch SportsCenter. And, you know, the, you know, LeBron James is like, you know, our team faced a lot of adversity this year. Like I kind of like kind of roll my eyes at that. Like adversity. What do you mean adversity? I mean you like your free throw percentage dropped, or you know you, you didn't get the minutes that you wanted, or your 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 assist numbers were down. That's not adversity. That's just like you know that's that's challenge, I guess. What I, what I try to do, and I try to provide the perspective that you know uh, adversity is is losing a limb, or adversity is is cancer. Adversity is a car wreck. Adversity is like you know the the major challenges that we face. Uh, in our life, the, the adversity is the loss of a loved one or something along those lines. I, what I try to portray is like there's there's people out there who have legitimate struggles and to, to label something as mundane as a drop in free throw percentage as adversity really kind of sells sells life short I think in some cases. So uh, I think if you can if you can if you can scale what your perception of adversity is it makes things really easy. Like for me uh, having the challenges that I've had in my life Little challenges like, like uh, what what other people would call adversity, make it's it's so much easier. So um, I try to I try to challenge people's perception of a, what adversity is and what it isn't, and and learn that uh, it it could be a lot worse. And if you look at it that way, the daily struggles that you face are generally pretty easy. Um, then as far as resilience, I have a lot of thoughts on resilience, and I I, I remember. Uh, you know, I've been doing the motivational speaking gig for quite a while, and uh, I go around and people will tell me that they're impressed by my level of resilience, and uh, like they're really impressed with how quickly I ba I bounced back. Um, and and I didn't necessarily like that comment, and uh, it took me a while. And I was reading this book by Eric Greitens about resilience, and he proposed a, an alternate definition of resilience, and that instead of bouncing back or like this elastic form of resilience. He, he proposed that resilience was something that was non-elastic, something that was dynamic, something like resilience means uh, making, a, a, making the deliberate choice to thrive in any environment. So I look at it in my life, like I didn't bounce back to original form. I'm not trying to be the person that I was. You know, I left behind Brad Snyder, the explosive ordnance disposal officer. I, that guy's, you know, he's not the same person as I am now. I, I, I I had some challenges, I had some struggles, I adapted and I, I, I pivoted and I changed and I transformed and now I am who I am now. I loved that definition. So resilience to me now is like learning to accept the circumstances within you, which you find yourself and deciding to thrive anyway. Um, I'm not trying to be the person that I was. I understand that 
in any given moment, all of us are different than the person that we were in the previous moment, right? Like every moment that we have to be here is an opportunity to, to grow and develop, to learn new things, to become wiser, stronger, uh, whatever, and to try to always return to some neutral form, you know, doesn't necessarily make sense. You guys were talking in the beginning about like this kind of con uh, the continuum of athleticism. Like you're always trying to become better. You're always trying to learn new things or become more flexible or to be able to do a thing you weren't able to do before. So I, 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 I like that definition of resilience more, deciding to thrive regardless of circumstance and always become better. So Brett, we, uh, you're on that vein of resilience. Um, we take we field a lot of questions either over email or, or phone or on our, our message boards. And one of the things before we can provide any sort of guidance, we have to understand context. And the question that we ask is, you know, what are you training for? And one of the most cliche answers we like, what we're obviously looking for is like football or I'm a volleyball player. But oftentimes we come across people who are quote unquote training for life, and it's become a bit cliche like. That's just kind of a, a default answer. Now, going through the using the terminology we terminology we discovered, going through the adversity that that you underwent, uh, you truly had to train for life. I mean, the the things that were second nature now become almost a skill practice for you. Like you had mentioned, putting toothpaste on a toothbrush. Um, did you follow any specific process or chunking model? You know, we refer to that as being, you know, breaking things down in the most fundamental tasks, mastering the fundamentals, and then combining the fundamentals to create more of a complex task, uh, whether it's a power clean or a back squat or something like that. But can you take us through that kind of retraining process and, and getting back into, you know, whatever groove you found to, to get through your daily, uh, you know, daily habits? Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. And uh, I have a couple different thoughts on that. But I would say, like, going back to my time in the Navy, you know, our, our job as explosive owners, as most technicians, are, it's, like, really complex and varied. Like, an explosive hazard could be anywhere. It could be uh, at the bottom of the ocean. It could be buried in Afghanistan. It could be, you know, uh, a bomb that got dropped and didn't go off. So, like, we're always doing something different. And you're always... Uh, you're always learning a new skill set all the time, uh, and that 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 knowledge base changes all the time. And you always start from square zero. You start at the fundamental. You start at the easiest thing, and you work your way to complex, uh, you know, the the complex skill sets or whatever. Just like you said, and it, it always builds on itself. You get used to that process in little blocks. You start, you walk, you crawl, you run, um, and you do it in all different uh, arenas. And you learn how that that process replicates itself over and over and over again. It doesn't matter if you're trying to take out a Connex box with a skill saw or if you are trying to do a dump, uh, deadlift like the, you start you start at the, the very smallest base and you work your way up to the, the more complex aspect of it. I got inundated with that kind of that challenge mindset while I was in the Navy and I kind of looked at blindness the same way um, but uh, when you when you're faced with the task of like you know how do I how do I become good at life as a blind person you can't you can't do that all at once like you, you it, I can't just click a switch and be adjusted. I have to do it. Uh, I have to do it one step at a time. I always use always use that like stupid Everest thing. Like the guy, how did the guy get to the top of Everest? He did it one step at a time. For me, when I was in the hospital, the very first thing I wanted to do was get the uh, wean off of the painkillers so I could take the IV out of my arm. And once I could take the IV out of my arm, I could start to move around my room. Once I could move around my room, I could learn how to like you know 
micro navigate and then they gave me a cane and then I could walk down the hallway once I could walk down the hallway I could like figure out how to walk around the hospital and then like you know challenge just works that way and you, you build off of the one little the easy step at the beginning and you just work your way up one step at a time one step at a time one step at a time and uh, you know I've been blind now for four years and there's still a lot of skills that I'm not really that good at but if I juxtapose myself now to what I was capable of in the hospital in Walter Reed you know it's 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 staggering and it's, it's really kind of you know it gives you a lot of confidence I guess to say like wow look how far I've come um, so I think that that uh, it's critically important that you you have that kind of like you have that in mind right you have those small goals that what is the most basic thing and then what is the target I'm shooting for uh, it gets into like goal setting I think uh, if you say that your goal is just to be good at life that's not an effective goal I, I, I it's almost a lazy goal it's just saying like I want to be good at life like well okay don't we all you know that's pretty easy to say let's dial in on it like do you want to be good at football and if you want to be good at football what specifically do you want to be good at do you want to be fast Do you want to be strong do you want to be all of the above what particular skill sets do you want to be able to do uh, and I think like having those defined goals is, is really critically important I was talking to my swim coach this morning about uh, like the, the importance of purpose in everything we do I have a I aim to have a purpose for everything I do because, you know, we're all very busy. We're all like trying to do a whole bunch of different things between podcasts and books and working out and, you know, succeeding on an international level, all that sort of stuff. If you're doing something without a purpose behind it, it's wasted effort. You know, what, what, why, why are you doing that? If you don't understand why you're doing it, it it's a wasted effort. So uh, having those goals set in advance and understand what you're trying to do um, you know, it really, it, it's really critically important. So everything that I'm doing is, is contributing towards an eventual goal, whether it's starting my own company, whether it's succeeding in Rio next year, or if it's like, I just want to be a good person. So I'm reading this book about, uh, you know, like how John was talking about how he wants to be a good dad. Like, oh, I want to be a good dad. I also want to be an athlete. I also want to be doing all these other things. You know, you make sure you know those goals in advance so that every movement that you're making is contributing to one of those goals. In the military, we have this uh, kind of concept called economy of motion. Like when we're moving around with our weapons, like I want, if I'm going to be moving for my pistol, you know, I want to be moving my body in a way that I, I don't waste any movement at all because any wasted movement is wasted time. And when you're trying to draw a pistol on an enemy who may be shooting at you as well, you don't want to waste any time because it might mean the end of the, at the end of your life. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm, I'm really big on purpose-driven everything, whether it's in athletics or just life in general. So out of curiosity, uh, and then I'm, after this I'll springboard it more towards kind of the performance side of it. You talked about the the chunking of, you know, navigating the room uh, in a micro manner and then moving up from there. Was that just an intuitive process for you? Was that something that just from your experience in the Navy, you knew that you had to kind of take this one bite at a time? Or um, was that something that you were mentored or coached uh, from a specialist? Oh, that's a hard question to answer. I'd say like it's kind of a combination of the three things you listed. It's some, one thing I, I've been inundated with bef between sports, uh, this idea of just, um, you know, swimming. Swimming's a weird where we have like basically like six-month cycles. Like you work, you, your, your volume comes really up at the beginning of the six months and you eventually work down to a taper then that's when you shave and you swim as fast as you can and then you iterate and you do that over and over and over again. So that's one kind of chunk and that's something I've been doing since I was 11 
I'd say, so understanding that kind of process is something I've been ingrained with uh, from, from an athletic standpoint from the beginning. And then, like I said, in the Navy, in the military, the military's way of teaching is really, I would say, that way. Like, it's, it's an effective way to teach because it's kind of like, it's, it's, uh, it's like drinking from the fire hose. Like, we want you to learn this as quick as possible, so here's the, the appropriate way for you to get all of this crazy information and learn these complex skill sets, but learn it very quickly. You have to start from the very basic part, and then you work your way up to the complex part. Like free fall training. Free fall training is like in, in four weeks you go from never having jumped out of an airplane to I can jump out of an airplane with oxygen, a weapon, uh, a rucksack t- tied to my legs, and I can also do a backflip while I'm in the air. Like, you know, in four weeks you learn those skills. And that's just you start very basically jumping out with two people on either side, and then you work your way up jump by jump. It becomes more and more complex. Um, having gone through all those sorts of things, especially in the Navy, uh, and especially with high-stakes stuff like jumping out of aircraft and then dismantling explosives, I really did look at blindness as a new challenge. I'll also add, though, like in while you're in that environment being uh, detrimented the way you are, you know, like I woke up in the hospital really unable to move effectively for the beginning part of it. Um, you're kind of forced to be into that situation. Like the very first thing I, I really want to do is, I, a, I just have to go to the bathroom, so I have to figure out my way to the bathroom. It's almost like a necessity thing in that particular environment to just start from the from the most basic part and then work your way up. Um, but I would say, like, I was conditioned to it from 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 athletics. It was reiterated in the military, and then it was largely a function of survival for the for the beginning part of how that I was inundated with that kind of challenge mindset. But then uh, later on, in retrospect, I I kind of see how that all worked, and then now I try to apply that to you know my, my current life in more of a deliberate manner as opposed to something that's kind of just happening to me. Well, let's talk about that process then jumping back into the pool. I mean you obviously had or you knew what to expect uh, from your from your youth experience as a swimmer but what were the challenges that, that you faced and, and how'd you overcome them when you jumped back in the pool the first time? Uh, I think the biggest thing I had to adapt to was this idea of crashing. So like I, it's really easy for me uh, having been a swimmer before, I know all the movements, I know how to do it, I know the, like, kind of the tactics of the races and everything, so I have this great foundation. Uh, I've worked up from that level zero to the complexities of being able to swim, you know, a, a, a very competitive 400 meter race or whatever. Um, then add the complexity of being able to do it without my vision, and the biggest part of that is just navigating the right way. And if I don't navigate, or sometimes when I'm racing real fast, I actually kind of forget that I'm blind. I'm really focused on the movement, I'm focused on moving fast. I forget that there's a lane line on either side, and if I don't go the right way, I'm going to smack into that lane line and, uh, you know, effectively lose lose speed and maybe smash my face or something along those lines. So I'm going to try to avoid that as much as possible. Learning how to get up to speed and be able to navigate that way was my biggest challenge and still remains to be my biggest challenge uh, as a blind swimmer. And I had to... I had to adapt some of the movements. I had to find ways that on my arm recovery, I'm looking for the lane line. Um, And then going back to resilience, I had to find ways to, once I've, you know, inevitably I'm going to crash at some point or another. I have to find a way to not lose my head and and, and get out of that crash as quick as possible and get back up to speed. So be able to adapt within within the race. So it was something... uh, you know, something that was pretty challenging at first and actually kind of scary, especially given the fact that, you know, uh, in September of 2011, I basically took a 40-pound blast to the face. By February, I'm now trying to sprint across a pool, and, and you know, the leading edge of my body is largely my face, so I'm really nervous to, to hit a lane line uh, in a place where I had just had, you know, major surgery. 
Um, but I found ways to, uh, I had a lot of coaching advice and like a lot of open-mindedness. You know, adaptive sports is really cool because everyone looks at something that an able-bodied athlete does and we all know exactly, at this particular point, we have got a lot of data and hundreds and hundreds of years of, of human movement uh, and knowledge to work on, on how an able-bodied person is supposed to do these sorts of things for maximum output. Well, now let's, we have to look at it a little bit different in the adaptive world. Maybe someone's missing a leg. Maybe they're missing two. Maybe they're missing a hand or whatever. In my, in my world, it was like, how do I find the lane line and still be up to speed? And I had some coaches who helped work with me on ways to bring my hands down but optimize my pull and um, also like learn to just be aware uh, of the water flowing across my body and being as symmetrical as possible and, and learn learn to feel when I'm veering off course, which is, sounds kind of crazy, I think. And sometimes I can tell and sometimes I can't, but that really just, that's, that's sometimes that's on me to just be, be present in the moment and, and, and then feel, feel, uh, feel my body as opposed to thinking about, thinking about other things, thinking about my stroke count or thinking about the race or thinking about the crowd or any of those things. I sometimes just have to think about the feel of the, bot the water flow across my body. You know, Brad, we uh, we had a chance to talk with another adaptive athlete, um, Travis Pollan, who's also a Paralympic swimmer. Um, I, I'm surprised that you your paths haven't crossed yet, and maybe they will. But during that conversation with him, we kind of we got we got on topic about uh, the approach to training like an adaptive athlete. And how's the difference between rehabbing the injured, uh, like injured veteran or the injured uh, athlete, and like prehabbing, right? And not walking on eggshells and, and challenging this uh, particular athlete to get them to take it to the next level. And I'd like to hear like your thoughts on on how you know your opinion on how a coach can take you know, the steps to provide that kind of environment for these athletes. Yeah, man, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm probably on the, on the wrong side of the scale. Sometimes I err much more on the challenge side. Like I let the athlete tell you when they've gone too far or like let the athlete tell you what they're capable of. Sometimes I, I, I err on the side of the, it's the coach's job to push them as hard as possible. I've seen too, way too many cases, you know, my, granted my, my experience is, is largely relegated to the wounded vet world and then most para athletes that I come across or have been doing this for a really long time and they know exactly the extent of their limitations and capabilities and they can articulate that to a coach but it, in the wounded vet community I think it's like it's up to they, they're they're all coming from a health uh, a hospital environment where an OT or an RT or a whatever T is going to be telling them exactly what they can and can't be doing on on a stump let's say by the time they're getting to you, a strength and conditioning coach out at, at a CrossFit gym or wherever, um, they they should be they should be well aware of what they should and shouldn't be doing. It's you to it's up to you to provide them the challenge, I think, um, and then just to look at just look at creative ways to to find ways to like enable them to do whatever movement it is that they want to do. So a great example is I think at uh, near UTEX at CrossFit Rubicon out in Northern Virginia, they have like weren't at wounded games and there's a girl there who's missing her hand but they've been able to use like uh, ankle straps and chains so that she can link up to a barbell and she can actually clean and she can do a whole bunch of different 
uh, big movements with the barbell without being able to actually grip it with her hand. And it's it took a coach to look at that problem with an open mind and say, well, why don't we try this? Why don't we try this? Why don't we try this? I think that's like the prevalent mindset in my world is, you know, why not try it? What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to get hurt again. All right, well, we, we go back to the rehab setting. But I, I think challenge is the most important thing, especially within the wounded vet community, is find a way to to tell them that, like, to, to focus on what they have and tell them that they can do something versus saying, like, well, you're, you know, you're missing your legs, so you obviously can't squat a barbell. Like, that's not necessarily true. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's up to the athlete and the coach to work together to find out what they can and can't do. Do you have any, uh, like, can you compare or contrast any of the coaches that you personally have been involved with um, pre and post blindness? Anything stick out? Uh, really just to jump on that, to jump on that, Denny. Uh, you know, there are, I guess, universal traits of, uh, you know, you're the best coach you've had, you know, leadership, walks the walk, uh, integrity. Uh, is there anything, have you found in your experience that uh, those who coach able-bodied athletes uh, or those who don't coach able-bodied athletes or working with uh, adaptive athletes need an extra an extra skill set or an extra, you know, tool in their toolbox to, to be a really successful coach for an adaptive athlete? I'd say the, so the, the first point of it, like the people that I find that I want to work for or I will follow, it goes back like to just, just blanket leadership. What's my theory on leadership? I think I'm, I'm big on compassion driven leadership. Uh, I, my coach here, Brian Leffler at Loyola, he's not a, a coach who's going to yell at you. He's not a coach who's going to you know, run up and cross the pool screaming and yelling and throwing stuff. There are a lot of swim coaches who are that way, and they, they, they're effective at getting athletes to do something almost out of fear. Like, I'm afraid of my coach. I'm afraid he's going to yell, so I'm going to do this you know, to not get in trouble. Like that, you, know, you can lead through fear. You can lead through yelling and that sort of stuff. But I think it's so much more effective to lead through compassion. I know my coach is really wholly invested in my eventual success. Like he, uh, he, he would bend over backwards to make sure that I had every resource to make sure that I was able to succeed. Every practice he's there, and when he's, when he's got his stopwatch out counting my splits, you know, he's really very tied to me. He's compassionate. He really wants to be there with me, and he wants to, like he is, is, is just involved. He's invested. He is in it. Um, for me to succeed. I want to succeed because I want to make him happy, because I respect him, because, because he's invested in me. Um, that, going back to compassionate driven leadership, that was like my theory with a, any team that I had. I was the officer in charge of two different platoons, one, the one to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. It was, critically, it was critically important for me to demonstrate to my guys that I was there for them. My number one job is to make sure that all of them are, are provided the tools uh, the equipment and the training they need to succeed and come home alive. Um, that's my number one job. My other, I have a whole list of other mission objectives that I'm held responsible and accountable for, but my number one job is to make sure that my boys come home alive. Um, and they knew that. I think they knew that. And I think that uh, I earned their respect through that compassion-driven leadership. I didn't necessarily need to be the best bomb tech. I didn't necessarily need to be the, the biggest, strongest, most yelly kind of guy out there they knew that I was wholly invested in them, and, and because of that, you know, I was their brother, and they were going to work for me out of respect. 
versus me ordering them to do one thing or another. So I'd say any coach that I've ever really, really felt a bond with was that like kind of I respected them and I I, res I respected them out of this understood compassion. Um, and then uh, t tactics that allow a coach to succeed in the para world is like an open mind, being able to look at movement for the sake of movement. You guys are all really, really good at that. Um, the way that you talk about uh, the fundamentals of movement and, and looking at certain things and being able to understand how to optimize for a certain lift or a certain uh, movement or like a muscle up or whatever it is. You know, you got to look at the fundamentals and understand that the way that a person's going to move with only one arm is completely different. But instead of saying, you know, you just really can't do that. Why don't you wait on the side while everyone else does it? Like, let's find a way to adapt to that. Let's use straps or let's use rubber bands or or let's just completely adapt the movement. Instead of doing a muscle up, you're going to do banded pull-ups or something along those lines. That's one of the things I've really liked about CrossFit is there's always a way to scale. There's always a way to look at a movement or do something differently even for able-bodied folks, and then, then that also translates well into adaptive sports as well, is, is having an open mind. I think this is a good transition to kind of get into your new style of dryland training and how that compared to what you did in college. I mean, if, if you had a solid program in college, and just kind of walk us through, do you all use machines? Is it, is it a trunk? you still get a barbell on your back, or how does it work? Yeah, so uh, I just basic history on my weightlifting mentality in college you know, back when I was in college in 2002 to 2006, I think the, the latent mindset in swimming was still just volume, 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 volume. I, you know, we, my, my aim was to become better by just swimming more than everybody else. And then, of course, you're trying to bring your 100 repeats or whatever down, but, you know, my, my overall goal was just to get as much yardage in as possible. We'd probably be swimming somewhere in the realm of, you know, at times up to 17,000 meters a day. Uh, just to have more volume than everybody else. And then by the time we got to the weight room, we're so, swimmers are so, like, like my shoulders were so loose at that particular point, I think loading them would have been really dangerous. So we did really, really kind of, I, I would just say our, our weight room mentality was kind of negligible. We went in ceremoniously and did some weights, but I don't think it really translated to the pool anywhere. Then by, I, I retired swimming in 2006 and moved into, Longer endurance athletics, Ironman triathlons, and stuff like that, and then got into CrossFit uh, when I was with the uh, when I got that job to work with uh, the SEALs because you know I'm carrying a lot of armor and my rucksack and my helmet and all that sort of stuff, and I need to be able to do I need to be able to do my job. I need to be able to think effectively, and I need to be able to hike long distances with heavy weight. You know, I thought the best routine there was to do something functional fitness-wise, being able to just enhance my ability to do my job by by lifting weight and, and doing it in a way that's it's hitting the different Metcons or whatever. Now it's been cool to come back to swimming with that experience and see how uh, uh, effective functional fitness is as far as the different movements in swimming. Swimming's a unique sport in that even in just a 100-meter freestyle, there's a lot of different movements between the start, the flip, and then the, the rotational uh, the stroke, like my pull from my right to my left side. There's a lot of different movements there, and I think they're really all very much enhanced by uh, Olympic lift and especially uh, focus on core. Uh, and then, like, anything you can do from kind of the, the gymnastic standpoint, being able to do pull-ups into muscle-ups especially is the best mimic for a swim pull. So I'm trying to – I'm actually working with the folks over, over at Under Armour at designing a, uh, a, a – for lack of a better term, a curriculum, a, a dry land curriculum that's going to uh, really be focused on translating uh, – 
generating strength through weights and then translating that into the water. And there's kind of like three different vectors that they have over there. It's the, um, it's, uh, there's mobility, then there's strength, and then there's just uh, recovery as well. And so focusing on those, those three different aspects uh, on the dry land in, in a, in a, with the goal of translating strength to the water in a way that's not going to be a detriment. You just go out and, like, if you just bench, you know, every day for six months, you probably get really good at bench, but it's, it's decreasing my ability to, to be flexible with my shoulders and all that sort of stuff. So we're trying to find ways to... Uh, increased strength without decreasing flexibility is probably the biggest uh, approach. Um, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Rafael Ruiz? Yeah, I, I, that's the first podcast of yours I listened to, and I was really, uh, it was interesting. He said things like the uh, nobody's really done an effective job. Well, I won't say nobody. I don't, I, I don't know what I don't know, but aside from him and a, a few others, nobody's really put a lot of legwork towards connecting the dots from. Uh, load on the dry land to to the water, and what he had to say I thought was really interesting, especially that idea of like dynamic flexibility. Like the way he was talking about one of his swimmers in the 200 fly, and how that guy is really good to the 150 mark, but it's because of flexibility that he fatigues at the latter part of his his race. And that echoed with me for sure. I, I definitely uh, I, I've had a lot of races that way myself, and I think that I, it definitely resonated with me in a big way. You know, years ago we had a pretty interesting deal where we had some yoga people come in and trade training with us, and what was amazing was that they were very flexible in terms of passive range of motion, but yet couldn't had no flexibility when if we looked at like active range of motion, for example, they were all you know great at their yoga poses as they were nice and relaxed, and you put some form of load on them, like whether it be a barbell back squat or even anything to compress, and they had so little flexibility under load that it kind of took me back and kind of scratched my head a little bit and realized I'm like, you know, this idea of uh, you know flexibility under load, uh, dynamic flexibility versus passive range of motion. And it kind of really started as kind of that sort of thinking where, you know, if you're going to be doing something that looks like stretching, it has to be something done in a dynamic way, just passively working on range of motion. doesn't really help us unless we're trying to get better at yoga. And I think, uh, you know, that's why almost something like Pilates works very well. But we've had a, a ton of athletes try to go down the yoga train with like, oh, you know, I'm going to do yoga and increase my flexibility. And I'm like, uh, I'd much rather see you squat heavy and be able to get to full range of motion under load than basically being able to go into a hot room in your underwear and do uh, a whole bunch of stretches. <laughs> so it, it kind of fit. And, um, you know, I, I've known Roth for years, and we've trained together forever, I mean, as long as I've been in this game. And uh, the work he's doing with the swimmers is pretty amazing. Um, you know, and he even talked about it on his podcast where uh, these guys are so naturally talented that a big part of their strength stuff is like, let's just not fuck them up. And, uh, you know, now he's down there where he's actually making differences. So, um, you know, we'd love to plug you in with him, and I'm sure you'd have a great conversation. And, um, you know, Rob is by far one of the most interesting giving guys I've met, but also like League, or like uh, Tex likes to call him, the League of Shadows. <laughs> and creative, though. I mean, extremely creative. Well, he's, uh, you know, what's what's interesting about Rob is um, Rob's work will not be really understood until he'll, he'll be like a great artist, you know, yeah. where like these guys are like, uh, you know, like don't have a nickel to buy a bottle of wine for their work, and then all of a sudden they pass away and their paintings sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> you know, so Rob's in that same light where his uh, his stuff is, and you know, and everybody on this podcast is, uh, you know, had an opportunity to work and to, to listen to Rob speak. I mean, he's um, he's a, a really really high level, and he does a lot of stuff when he was down in Tampa working with the guys from Naval Special Warfare. And uh, I was going to ask, uh, do you know uh, Alex Sonnenberg? Uh no, that I haven't run across him. You know, yeah, he was an EOD guy. Um, that uh, 
I, I met. He was, you know, out at Damn Neck, and um, I knew him from San Diego. And he actually took me out to El Centro, and we got to actually blow off some ordnance. So it was pretty funny. Yeah. Top of pack C4, and uh, go out there and blow up a bunch of stuff. It was pretty awesome. So that was my <laughs> great experience with the guys from EOD. Yep, yeah, it's some, some old wheelhouse. Yep, and it it's neat. Like the EOD community and the Steel community as well are are very tight knit, and there's a lot. Uh, you know, it's it, it was tough to leave because it is such a cool brotherhood and everything. But what's neat is like every time I go back down to Virginia Beach, you know, we go back to the same old places and it's all the same guys and it's great to catch up with them and it, it's a really a unique brotherhood uh, and, and very prideful to be a part of that brotherhood for sure. Nice. Yeah, Brad, um, I was gonna I was gonna tell you uh, the the CrossFit gym that I coach at is CrossFit UXO. So the owner's oh, that's a awesome. former, yeah, he's a bomb guy. When I told him that I was going to be talking to you, he's like, oh, yeah, I know him. He's he's friends with my EOD brother, Joe Bland. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Joe Bland? Yeah, I know Joe. Cool, man. Yeah, so I'll uh, – the guy who owns this gym, his name is Jason Houston. So when uh, when when we launch this show to the masses, I'll definitely uh, send it to him so he can check it out, man. I'm sure he'll get a kick out of it. Yeah, that'd be great, man. That'd be great. All right. Well, that's pretty much that's pretty much an hour, guys. I mean, we want to start wrapping this show up. Is there what how can people kind of get a hold of you, Brad? And you know, what uh you know, social media or like websites and stuff you want to put out there for us? I'm I'm Brad Snyder USA across the board. I'm uh doing my best to to tweet and Facebook. Uh I'm not this, the most savvy social media. I'm certainly not like you guys, but I'm, I'm working on it as much as possible. Um, but I'm, I'm real excited about next year and the, the Paralympics. It's the first time that NBC has decided to invest in us and put us on prime time. So we're actually going to be on TV next fall, um, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think a lot of people are going to see some really inspirational performances by the athletes in the para world. It's really incredible. I think, you know, when you watch the Olympics, one of the things they like to do is do these kind of like, uh, you know, profiles on the athlete and tell this great story. Well, what's great about the Paralympics is that every athlete has just an incredible story, whether, uh, you know, there's a, there's a guy who's a, an Italian race car driver who is now paralyzed and now uh, uh, is a hand cyclist and, you know, other athletes who are, you know, maybe born without legs and things like that. And you really see what they're capable of. And I think it's inspirational and it provides a lot of that perspective we were talking about as far as, you know, adapting your scale of adversity and things like that. So, I'm excited to have as many people with us on that journey as possible, and I really thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to come out and chat with you for a while. That's great. The uh, it's so empowering. Um, you know, we had a, a client at Balboa who was born without a hand, and I remember the first day she came in, like we like, rigged her up this deal with a strap and a hook, and I remember watching her do pull-ups and like basically like pushing up on her, uh, you know, uh, I guess you'd call it nub or the stuff. Uh -huh. and, uh, it was pretty amazing having to rig everything for her and. Uh -huh. Never once complained about it. Never oh. once ever said anything, and like it was, it was kind of awesome when just watching her kick people's asses. That uh -huh, were, yeah. You know, where people come in and be like, "Oh, you know, I can't do this. I'm having a problem." I'm like, you just kind of point and be like, "We have a lady on. who's missing a hand. Who's like a mother of two. Who's like crushing your life with like a you know, at her time, even I got to go strap an apparatus on her hand." Uh -huh. And I think it's just, um, you know, I mean, to it's it. It's not only it's empowering, but it's also like a, a firm kick in the nuts and the balls or the ass for most people where you're like, hey, man, uh, your day wasn't really that bad. Let's go. Yeah, it's that perspective that Brad's talking about. So yeah, which is – Recalibrate that a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm stoked to see that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm be, the, be the first one to watch. I think that's, uh, that's incredible and it's about time. Brad, you also said you had a, a book coming out. 
Yeah, I just uh, I just finished the manuscript. We're working with the editor right now, but it's going to come out uh, I think uh, late next summer, like August time frame. It's going to be called Fire in My Eyes. So um, along with I, I I told it in a narrative style, just telling you like all in, you know right on my back as I had all those experiences. But the whole point of it was to deliver some of those those lessons, talking about the power of community and uh, perspective and making a deliberate decision to be a positive person and you know, being a, being aware of the effect that you're having on the community is something I wanted to drive home. So it was really, a, it was a fun, it was a stressful process. I'm sure you guys have been through all that sort of stuff, but um, it was it was fun, and I'm really proud of the manuscript that we have in our hands right now. So I'm excited for that to come out next summer. Yeah, awesome. And you're you're just in Baltimore, so you're a drive away from me. So we'll definitely have to connect up there. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get through the holidays with the family and the cookies and all that sort of stuff, and then, uh, <laughs> then we'll wake up afterwards. Oh, so oh, many oh. cookies are coming. <laughs> the cookies already started. No, yeah. not me. I'm paleo. Oh, God. Oh, I, I was sitting there. I was like, no. I like my wife has a cookie party for our kids. Like it's like a deal for the school. They have to have like this. Like I, I don't even know what a cookie party is. So <laughs> like, There's a bunch of cookies. Oh, and I, it's amazing. I, I was like, I was like, I was like, so what is a cookie party? She's like, just like what it sounds. It's a bunch of little girls making cookies with their moms, and then they eat them. I'm like, okay, I'm not totally going to that, and uh, you go get a hotel room because those kids are going to be crazy. But my <laughs> wife was making uh, brownies and I, like last night. I'm like, what is that smell? And I walked out, and there was just brownies and cookies everywhere. I'm like, I'm just going to That's what I did for me. No, <laughs> you, oh, did you have cookie hangover this no, morning? No, the reason I come in is because I've been on this 12-pack smoking deal for the last 12 days. <laughs> no, I, I, somehow I got like ninja blow darted with something my kids brought home, and and mid uh, at the symposium, all of a sudden I lost my voice, and then I've been waking up every day feeling like, uh, you know, somebody's been like, shit run over twice. Oh, dude, like somebody's punching me in the throat. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So these guys give me a bad time. I miss workout a couple times this week. Yeah. Oh, you're at home eating cookies. I'm like, I wish. Mm -hmm. I'm I was gonna throw that out at you guys. Is that would be a really interesting podcast. Like, I just got sick last week, and I, I was thinking as I was listening to you guys, I was like, there should be. It'd be cool to talk to an expert on like. How do you recover from illness in the most optimum way? I was thinking, like, if I go to practice today, am I going to set myself back, or do I should I push through it, or you know, like, uh, what are some good guidelines on that? It kind of, um, and I actually did that. I texted Dr. Tom, and I was like, Tom, how do I get rid of this? And so he sent me like a list of all these different supplements. Uh, the big thing is, is if you compromise your immune system, it's going to take longer and longer for you to, you know, get better. So you have to try to remove some things that compromise immune function, try to add some things. And um, if you can, go get a high dose of vitamin C is what he uh, recommended. Yeah, so sleep. I can go over and, and then sleep, obviously being, you know, the big deal, don't go a bit late. And, um, you know, just kind of some of the little things like drink plenty of water and, uh, you know, don't get all boozed up. And, what? Uh, which, it's a holiday. Big <laughs> Right, but but I mean, even, even like some of the you know compromise. And Tom was also, uh, hey, have you eaten anything out of the ordinary that you don't really eat? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. uh, I think we did, you know, have that. And he's like, well, you know, anytime you have changes in diet, changes in sleep, all of a sudden you're around a whole bunch of people that you aren't normally around, or you have kids yeah, like that like go story. home and like you know bring home God knows what from school. Um, you know, for the most part, I'm always fine. Uh, but I think for some reason they just ninja blow darted me and mm -hmm. now I'm done. So sleep, hydration, tons of vitamin C, and uh, I'm gonna lick Luke and Fisher's face here in a few no, minutes. No, 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 so no. Just, just like Rick James. <laughs> just a big lick right across the face. No, sir. Stand that reach. All right, guys. No, thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. It was a great was show. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right, Brad. Thanks, man. Thank Brad. you so much. Merry Christmas. Christmas. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. 
follow Brad Snyder's training and life on Instagram at BradSnyderUSA. You can also read about his amazing story and motivational speaking opportunities on his website, www.bradsnyderusa.com. I encourage you to share this episode with friends and family, especially during the holiday season. Merry Christmas to everyone from Power Athlete HQ, and until next time, bye!